Please stand while I read today's reading. It is several verses from the chapter, chapter 4 in Judges. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labadoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. This is the word of the Lord.
Thank you, Carol. You may be seated if you're not already. It is good to have you with us today. Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and as always, it is good to be with you as we continue again in our uh, look at the book of Judges this week. It's like it's like layers of a strange onion, this whole book. Every week when we go through, as, as we read a new text, it seems like the stories can hardly get wilder. And then you get to the next one. And we get to this one today, and it was funny because I, I spent a lot of time in this, in this text this week, so I was looking around as Carol read that for us, and it was funny when we got to the part with the tent peg, you could see people look up and their eyes get big. And for some of you, this is a story that's unfamiliar. For some, it's one that you've maybe read in the past, but it's not one that you've read recently, and maybe you've never heard it taught on. And you're wondering, as I was at the beginning of the week, what in the world are we going to learn from this? What's the story in this? And this is just a neat thing that God has been doing each week as we've been in this because as we look at these texts each week, at first blush, you go, why in the world is this in here? We talked about this already last week. But as you begin to read and dive into the word and look at what it says and look at the surrounding text and the overarching theme of the book, what you see is that time and time and time again, God is convincing us of his own faithfulness, his own compassion, and his own deliverance in spite of our faithlessness, our rejection, and our rebellion, that he continues to be faithful and to provide, and he teaches us more and more about that this week, that there's this consistent theme that in the middle of man's disobedience, God remains faithful. And it's really the theme of the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is given over to this idea. It is one means or another of man trying to earn their own worth, earn their, approve their own value, uh, establish their own identity, earn their way to God, and showing through various means that they are unable to do that. That what they need above all else is a deliverer. They need somebody who can do the work for them that they are unable to do themselves. And each of the judges that we're looking at throughout this story really acts as an imperfect shadow of Christ. They reveal bits and pieces of who Jesus is going to be, however imperfectly they demonstrate it. They all have their own flaws and they all have their own issues and increasingly so as the book continues, but God still chooses in his providence, in his glory and in his grace to use them to deliver his people from their sins and from the oppression that they were, that they were far from able to handle on their own. But what these judges could accomplish only in part and for a short period of time, Jesus was able to accomplish fully and on an eternal scale. And so as we look at these stories, my encouragement to you this morning is to have your mind open to the snapshots of Jesus that we see through these men and women. And with that, let's begin by looking at verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. We talked at length about Ehud last week, the deliverance that God had brought through the left-handed assassin in overthrowing Eglon the king. We've already mentioned that there's this pattern in Judges that repeats itself over and over again where the people wander, they experience hardship, they cry out to God in distress, and God delivers them through a judge. But as soon as that judge exits the stage, the people begin to wander again. 
It seems as if the only thing in the lives of these Israelite people that was keeping them tied to their faith was the presence of these judges. And Dale Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on the book of Judges, writing along this theme, says it this way, and I want you to listen closely because there is so much in this verse one that we would be tempted to just read past as historical context. Listen to what Davis says. He says, there is something wrong with your religion when its degree of fidelity depends solely on outside pressures, influences, and leadership. Then we are Christian only because of our surroundings or because of the expectations of Christian people around us and and lack a genuine internal work of God. Now here's why this jumps out at me so strongly. Many of you in this room, perhaps most of you, like me, grew up in some sort of a religious context. That to varying degrees or another, you had experience going to church or attending a faith-based school or participating in religious rites or even just having a vague understanding of Christianity by virtue of growing up in America. And while in many ways that can be a blessing to us because it gives you a baseline of understanding, in another way it presents a very real problem. Because our cultural experience when it comes to the church is very much and often in a very unhealthy way geared around the gifts, talents, and callings of a very small number of people. In fact, it's so much a part of the spirit of the age that we live in that we don't even recognize that it's there. It's like the proverbial fish who was asked to describe water, and he answered, what water? At some point, you become so inundated with a particular worldview that you don't even realize you've subscribed to it. So, in our American context, we pick a church and we determine whether we're going to attend based on the perceived giftedness of the preacher or the quality of the music or the programs that they offer or some other factor. And none of those things are inherently wrong in and of themselves, but we end up making our participation contingent on the perceived spiritual benefit that we get. And when we do that, listen, we end up unwittingly hitching our own spiritual well-being to the experience that we have on a Sunday morning. So if I feel fed or entertained or challenged by the preaching, it was a good Sunday. And if I don't, it was a bad Sunday. If I liked the songs that we sang and they're ones that resonated with me and I felt uplifted by them, it was a good Sunday. And if I didn't like the songs or I didn't like who was leading or I didn't like something else about it, it was a bad Sunday. Without even realizing it, we have become spiritually dependent on the experience provided by someone else. And we begin to live our spiritual lives vicariously through the insights and experiences of someone else. And that is a very dangerous place to be. Because what happens if, like the Israelites, that person is removed from your life? What happens if your circumstance changes? Your faith and your spiritual life must be rooted, as Davis says in his commentary, in a genuine internal work of God. Christian leaders and preachers and authors and pastors and studies can be an incredible resource, but they are not the sole point of the church. 
and they are not strong enough to anchor your spiritual life. It's the reason why Paul, when praying for the fledgling church in Ephesus, says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Listen, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Listen, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul knew that he was not enough to keep the church grounded. That for all of his giftedness and all of his intelligence, The people of Ephesus needed an internal rootedness in the person of Jesus Christ. And in fact, he wanted them to be so rooted, according to Galatians chapter 1, that even if he personally were to come back and preach a different gospel to them, they would not be moved. And so my practical question as we begin to look at this text today is, where is your faith anchored? Is it, depending on this, is it dependent, rather, on the gifting, on the skill set, on the availability of someone else? Are you living vicariously through someone else's spiritual insights and experience? Or have you been grounded and rooted in the love of Jesus Christ, filled with all the fullness of God, so that you know his voice and you know his calling and you know his leading in your life, so that when you open the word of God, it's not a dry, dusty history book, but it's the living, breathing word of God through which his spirit enlightens and enlivens your life. Will you be led by the Spirit in submissive obedience to the Word of God? Or are you clinging to someone else? To put it even more starkly, is God enough? Or are you left unsatisfied by His Word, requiring someone to fill the gap for you? In the words of one author, consume the Word of God until it consumes you. Be quiet with the Lord. Spend time getting to know his voice. Sit in stillness in his presence. Open his word and trust the Holy Spirit to reveal things in and through it that you never would have presumed he would have been able to show you. Well, the people of Israel at this point didn't do that. Their faith in God only reached as far as Ehud. And when he was gone, so was their religion. They wander, they start worshiping other idols, they intermarry with the Canaanites, they're back exactly where they had been before the deliverance through Ehud. And so God allows Sisera, a commander in the army of the Canaanite king Jabin, to overrun and oppress the Israelites. And to give you a a glimpse into the power of Sisera, he had 900 chariots, which would be like the modern-day equivalent of bringing tanks into an infantry war. And this army seems impossible to defeat. To put it into perspective, Sisera basically had one chariot for every 10 untrained soldiers that the Israelites were going to be able to muster in verse 10. 
And that doesn't even account for all of the additional soldiers that were under his command. And because of the military strength that he had, Sisera runs roughshod over the Israelite people for 20 years. His exploits are talked about further in chapter 5, where we are told that one of the things that he did in, in, uh, primarily was come into the Israelite camp and he would take women as slaves for himself. This is a cruel, cruel, wicked man. Until God raises up Deborah. Deborah was a prophetess who spoke on behalf of God to the people of Israel. God had called her to be one of the judges, and he had called her specifically to correct their idolatry, to call them back to himself. And so Deborah comes to Barak, this general in the Israelite army. She speaks on behalf of God, and she says, I want you to know this. God has commanded you to gather 10,000 people and face Sisera. Now, the two women that are mentioned in this text, Deborah and Jael, are two of the main characters in this story, and they are unusual for an Old Testament text in that they are women. And much has been made of this fact. People have extrapolated all kinds of things from the inclusion of these two women in this text, ranging from women's role in the home and church to all kinds of feminist tropes. There's a wide range of ways that people discuss the inclusion of these two women, and certainly there's conversation to be had around that. But the problem with viewing that as the primary means of their inclusion in this story is that it doesn't actually seem to be the point of the text. And I say that because of what follows, beginning in verse 8. Barak said to Deborah, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. In other words, God's intention, at least as it reads to us, was for, was for Barak to obey and lead the people against Sisera. But Barak, like seemingly everyone of his generation, struggles with trusting that God would actually follow through on his promise. Though he had heard the stories and knew the tales of the way that God had delivered through the other judges, though he had heard the stories of his ancestors being delivered out of the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt by, by means of the crossing of the Red Sea, though he had heard of God's deliverance all throughout his life, in this moment where Deborah comes to him and says, God wants you to take 10,000 people and face Sisera, he says, I will only do it if you come with me. And Deborah goes so far as to say, if you do that, there will be no glory for you in the victory because God will deliver Sisera by the hand of a woman. And in so doing, God is once again showing that nothing short of his deliverance is going to provide salvation for the people. The Israelites were about to take up a small, unprepared, overmatched army led by a woman, essentially, to face a powerful force led by a lifelong military commander. Now, we don't exactly know what's going on in the heart of Barak, and all kinds of commentators have guessed as to whether or not this was a demonstration of his faith by the virtue of the fact that he wanted a woman of God with him, or a demonstration of his lack of faith by virtue of the fact that he refused to go without her. I tend to lean towards the latter. 
I wonder if this comes back to the theme of verse 1, that Barak knew that God was powerful and had the ability to deliver Sisera, but didn't believe that God was willing to do it for him. Certainly God is able to do this in in Deborah's life. Look at who she is. Look at what an amazing, wonderful woman she is. Look at the way that she speaks on behalf of God. Look at her wisdom and the way that she judges the people. Look at the way that she's able to discern what is wise and what is right. She has a direct line to God. Certainly God will bless her, but why in the world, thinks Barak, would God bless me? And certainly that's a bit of opinionating on my part. But the reason this jumps out at me as a potential option is that I've actually seen this as a fairly common struggle for people who I've known. I've known married couples and families who've essentially viewed God's, the godly family members as a good luck charm. That God's favor would perhaps be on them as an extension of his love for somebody else. Because my wife loves Jesus, maybe he'll be gracious with me. Because my husband loves God, maybe he'll treat me kindly. Because I come from a Christian home, perhaps God's favor will be on me as it was towards my parents. And the problem with that notion is that it presumes that God doles out, our, doles out favor based upon our worthiness rather than by his goodness. God doesn't work that way. He is not waiting around to find and bless good people who have it figured out. To paraphrase one author, God only uses sinful and broken people because sinful and broken people are all that there are to use. And by not trusting God to deliver Sisera into his hand without Deborah, Barak lost the glory that went with obedience. In other words, his life essentially becomes a cautionary tale rather than a testimony of dependence on God. And to the extent that you and I fall into the very same trap of believing that God has an amazing ability to use other people, better people, but that he can't use us, you are doing nothing other than robbing yourself of the wonder of seeing God use even you. That he will use you even in the midst of your broken dependence on him that he will use your broken story, your historical failures, your lack of ability, your self-perceived insignificance as a means of demonstrating his glory and his goodness and his ability to bring about amazing things in and through your life. Because when you depend on God to do what only he can do in your life, he gets all the glory for what he accomplishes. And Deborah's purpose in this story was to show exactly that. To show the faithfulness of God and her faith in God's promise revealed it. So look what happens in verse 13. Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Heresheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon, And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Barak apparently needed this pep talk from Deborah. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Verse 15, look at these words. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. 
And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now, in human terms, this battle shouldn't have even been close. This should have been no contest and no sweat for the men of Sisera's army. They had all the technological advancements. They had all the advancements in training. They had all of the people. They had all of the military experience. They go out to face this fledgling army of 10,000 people. But according to verse 15, God routs the army of Sisera. And we're not told explicitly what happens, but it's intimated in chapter 5. If you read through the Song of Deborah in chapter 5, she actually sings about the victory that's about to take place. And one of the things she indicates is that something happened with the waters, the rivers that are running through this area. It seems to indicate that the chariots were not expecting that the water would have actually shifted and moved in this area in a way that was unexpected. Perhaps it meant that they got bogged down or that they weren't able to maneuver as well as they otherwise would have expected. But regardless of what happens, when it says that the Lord routed Sisera, what it is showing, according to one commentator, is that God himself threw them into a panic. They didn't know which way was up or what was going on. So much so that Sisera's army in this moment is defeated at the hands of these 10,000 seemingly insignificant, untrained warriors. And Sisera only manages to escape by jumping off of a chariot and running away on foot. And at this point, it seems as if the prediction that Deborah has given is maybe not the prophecy, rather, that she's given is actually not going to happen. She had said that Sisera specifically was going to be delivered into the hand of a woman. But notice what happens in verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. Now, really briefly, I want you to notice something. There's a verse that we didn't read this morning. It's verse 11 of chapter 4. And in that verse, what it tells us, seemingly out of nowhere, is this little geographical incident. And what we're told in verse 11 is that the family of Heber the Kenite actually moved from the area in which they lived to a seemingly far-off distant area from where all of the rest of the story is taking place. That long before this battle ever took place, long before Deborah had ever been in a position to actually see the deliverance of Sisera into the hands of the armies of God, God had moved this one particular family from their homeland to a far away, far flung area. An area which in this moment Sisera just happens to stumble upon. He walks into this region, realizes that these are a people who are in league with his king. They have an allied agreement with his king. And so he thinks, finally, I'll be able to have some respite, some salvation. I'll be able to stop running. He's lost the battle, but he's thinking, at least I've escaped with my life. But God's will was not going to be stymied by his seeming escape. Because God had already planned the end of this man's life 
in ways that he could not have imagined. Verse 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. While he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Three words that we probably didn't actually need. Now we're not told exactly why Jael did this. But I think it's safe to imagine that because of Sisera's brutality to those under his rule, the brutality that is spoken of in chapter 5, it's probably not hard to guess. Countless women and young girls had been abused and mistreated at the hand of Sisera. And now, in an unbelievable twist of irony, he dies at the hands of a woman. And just as Eglon's death in the restroom was humiliating for him, so was Sisera's death, not in the heat of battle, not in the honor of war, but at the hand of a housewife in the middle of nowhere. And in this brutal death, and it is brutal, the prophecy of Deborah was fulfilled. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. See, the glory for Israel's deliverance once again does not go to Deborah or Barak or even Jael. It goes to God alone. That everything in this story had been constructed in a way to demonstrate God's continued deliverance and protection for his people and his willingness to judge those who stood against his people. And what's fascinating is as you look at the whole of the Old Testament, you find language about the crushing of heads often. It's a description that you find as early as Genesis chapter 3. You find it again in the book of Deuteronomy. You find it again here in the book of Judges. And there's several other places where the same idea is used. And certainly this would not have slipped past the escape of the Israelite people who heard this story. This wasn't God just trying to find one more means to destroy somebody in an unbelievably brutal fashion. No, this was God, in a very clear way, sending a message to his people. That those who stood against God's beloved people ultimately would meet their end. That Sisera, in this moment, had his head crushed. And as the Israelites would have heard that story, their minds immediately would have jumped to Genesis chapter 3, where immediately upon the sin of Adam and Eve, God comes into the situation and says, the serpent, meaning Satan in that particular passage, the serpent in this moment is, is going to strike the heel of the deliverer, the future Messiah, but the future Messiah will crush the head of the serpent. And what's happening in this story is a picture of what was ultimately going to happen through Jesus Christ on the cross. Because when Jesus went to the cross, there was a moment where everyone who knew and loved Jesus, all of those who were there that day, thought that Satan had won. They thought that their hope had been in vain. Here was their Savior, their Lord, their King, their Jesus, dead on a cross. 
and it seemed in a moment as if all had been lost. How in the world is a dead Messiah going to help us? How is a dead Messiah going to deliver us? How is he going to deliver us from sin? How is he going to deliver us from the hand of oppression? How is he going to deliver us and bring us into right relationship with God? What can he possibly do for us now? But in the moment where Jesus Christ, three days later, rose from the dead, he demonstrated that what people had thought was his end was actually merely the striking of his heel. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he demonstrated that he and he alone had the power to crush the head of the serpent. See, the story of Deborah, Barak, Sisera, and Jael is a picture of what Jesus was going to do. That our means of salvation had to come from somewhere on the outside that try as we might to deliver ourselves and bring our own salvation and rescue ourselves from our own problems or our own issues or the troubles around us, what we really needed was somebody else to do it for us. And the only one who could do it was Jesus Christ. And he did it perfectly. And it is because of that, brother and sister, that you and I need not be dependent upon someone else for our continued faithfulness and love of God. That our hope is in and through Jesus and him alone. That he has showed himself to be big enough, powerful enough, loving enough, gracious enough to pursue and to love to extend his hand of compassion and adopt us into his family and provide us protection, to give us a new identity and an eternal home. What Jael accomplished for deliverance for the people of Israel lasted only for a moment, but what Jesus Christ accomplished for your deliverance and mine lasts us an eternity. And because of that, we can depend and trust on him even when it seems like things might be falling apart around us. So see in these judges a picture of the goodness and the faithfulness of our Lord. His continued hand and his continued presence and deliverance in your life and mine. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truth that we find in your word this morning. We thank you, God, for a story that once again so catches us by surprise and so undoes our expectations that it forces us to ask the question, what is it you want us to learn from it? And God, when we go through that exercise, what we discover is that this story ultimately is not really even about Barak or Deborah or Sisera at all. What it's really about is your deliverance your hand over your chosen people thousands of years ago and your hand over your beloved people today. God, that regardless of where we find ourselves in this world, in Heartland, Wisconsin, or the middle of Peru, you are there, present with us, working, delivering, 
rescuing, saving people whom you love for your glory. So help us to trust in you and in you alone. And we'll give you all the honor and the glory for it. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.